Chapter 17 of the Oregon Trail. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Oregon Trail by Francis Parkman, Jr. Chapter 17 The Black Hills. We traveled eastward for two days, and then the gloomy ridges of the Black Hills rose up before us. The village passed along for some miles beneath their declivities, trailing out to a great length over the arid prairie, or winding at times among small detached hills or distorted shapes. Turning sharply to the left, we entered a wide defile of the mountains, down the bottom of which a brook came winding, lined with tall grass and dense copses, amid which were hidden many beaver dams and lodges. We passed along between two lines of high precipices and rocks, piled in utter disorder one upon another, and with scarcely a tree, a bush, or a clump of grass to veil their nakedness. The restless Indian boys were wandering along their edges, and clambering up and down their rugged sides, and sometimes a group of them would stand on the verge of a cliff and look down on the array as it passed in review beneath them. As we advanced, the passage grew more narrow. Then it suddenly expanded into a round grassy meadow, completely encompassed by mountains, and here the families stopped as they came up in turn, and the camp rose like magic. The lodges were hardly erected when, with their usual precipitation, the Indians set about accomplishing the object that had brought them there, that is, the obtaining poles for supporting their new lodges. Half the population, men, women, and boys, mounted their horses and set out for the interior of the mountains. As they rode at full gallop over the shingly rocks and into the dark opening of the defile beyond, I thought I had never read or dreamed of a more strange or picturesque cavalcade. We passed between precipices more than a thousand feet high, sharp and splintering at the tops, their sides beetling over the defile, or descending in abrupt declivities bristling with black fir-trees. On our left they rose close to us like a wall, but on the right a winding brook with a narrow strip of marshy soil intervened. The stream was clogged with old beaver dams, and spread frequently into wide pools. There were thick bushes and many dead and blasted trees along its course, though frequently nothing remained but the stumps cut close to the ground by the beaver and marked with the sharp chisel-like teeth of those indefatigable laborers. Sometimes we were driving among trees and then emerging upon open spots, over which Indian-like all galloped at full speed. As Pauline bounded over the rocks I felt her saddle-girth slipping and delighted to draw it tighter. When the whole array swept past me in a moment, the women with their gaudy ornaments tinkling as they rode, the men whooping and laughing and lashing forward their horses. Two black-tailed deer bounded away among the rocks. Raymond shot at them from horseback. The sharp report of his rifle was answered by another equally sharp from the opposing cliffs, and then the echoes, leaping in rapid succession from side to side, died away, rattling far amid the mountains. After having ridden in this manner for six or eight miles, the appearance of the scene began to change, and all the declivities around us were covered with forests of tall, slender pine trees. The Indians began to fall off to the right and left, and dispersed with their hatchets and knives among these woods to cut the poles which they had come to seek. Soon I was left almost alone. But in the deep stillness of those lonely mountains, the stroke of hatchets and the sound of voices might be heard from far and near. 
Reynal, who imitated the Indians in their habits as well as the worst features of their character, had killed buffalo enough to make a lodge for himself and his squaw, and now he was eager to get the poles necessary to complete it. He asked me to let Raymond go with him and assist in the work. I assented, and the two men immediately entered the thickest part of the wood. Having left my horse in Raymond's keeping, I began to climb the mountain. I was weak and weary and made slow progress, often pausing to rest, but after an hour had elapsed I gained a height whence the little valley out of which I had climbed seemed like a deep, dark gulf, though the inaccessible peak of the mountain was still towering to a much greater distance above. Objects familiar from childhood surrounded me. Crags and rocks, a black and sullen brook that gurgled with a hollow voice deep among the crevices, a wood of mossy distorted trees and prostrate trunks flung down by age and storms, scattered among the rocks or damming the foaming waters of the little brook. The objects were the same, yet they were thrown into a wilder and more startling scene, for the black crags and the savage trees assumed a grim and threatening aspect, and close across the valley the opposing mountain confronted me, rising from the gulf for thousands of feet with its bare pinnacles and its ragged covering of pines. Yet the scene was not without its milder features. As I ascended I found frequent little grassy terraces, and there was one of these close at hand, across which the brook was stealing, beneath the shade of scattered trees that seemed artificially planted. Here I made a welcome discovery, no other than a bed of strawberries, with their white flowers and their red fruit, close nestled among the grass by the side of the brook. And I sat down by them, hailing them as old acquaintances, for among those lonely and perilous mountains they awakened delicious associations of the gardens and peaceful homes of far distant New England. Yet wild as they were, these mountains were thickly peopled. As I climbed farther I found the broad dusty paths made by the elk as they filed across the mountainside. The grass on all the terraces was trampled down by deer, there were numerous tracks of wolves, and in some of the rougher and more precipitous parts of the ascent I found footprints different from any that I had ever seen, and which I took to be those of the Rocky Mountain sheep. I sat down upon a rock. There was a perfect stillness. No wind was stirring, and not even an insect could be heard. I recollected the danger of becoming lost in such a place, and therefore I fixed my eye upon one of the tallest pinnacles of the opposite mountain. It rose sheer upright from the woods below, and by an extraordinary freak of nature sustained aloft on its very summit a large, loose rock. Such a landmark could never be mistaken and feeling once more secure I began again to move forward. A white wolf jumped up from among some bushes and leaped clumsily away, but he stopped for a moment and turned back his keen eye and his grim bristling muzzle. I longed to take his scalp and carry it back with me as an appropriate trophy of the Black Hills, but before I could fire he was gone among the rocks. Soon I heard a rustling sound, with a cracking of twigs at a little distance, and saw moving above the tall bushes the branching antlers of an elk. I was in the midst of a hunter's paradise. Such are the Black Hills, as I found them in July. 
but they wear a different garb when winter sets in when the broad boughs of the fir-tree are bent to the ground by the load of snow and the dark mountains are whitened with it at that season the mountain trappers returned from their autumn expeditions often build their rude cabins in the midst of these solitudes and live in abundance and luxury on the game that harbors there i have heard them relate how with their tawny mistresses and perhaps a few young indian companions they have spent months in total seclusion they would dig pitfalls and set traps for the white wolves the sables and the martins and though through the whole night the awful chorus of the wolves would resound from the frozen mountains around them yet within their massive walls of logs they would lie in careless ease and comfort before the blazing fire and in the morning shoot the elk and the deer from their very door End of chapter seventeen